Appetite for Distortion, episode number 374. My name is Brando. Coming up a little bit later on in the program for Appetite for Discovery, we're going to be speaking with photographer Kevin Estrada, and he is the co-producer of this major box set coming out, Bound for Hell, on the Sunset Strip. We'll talk to him later on, but first, you know him from A Perfect Circle, Ashes Divide, Maybe even from his time with Guns N' Roses, even though he never played a show. But he was there. He was also on this podcast before. How are you, Mr. Billy Howardell? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's been a few months, but I think there's a lot to talk about because last time you were on, your new album was it wasn't out yet. We were talking about what normal was, what it was going to be. But now it's been out. You've toured on it. So I guess first things first, how do you feel i guess at this moment that you've been uh the tour is, is over right uh, i don't think you have any right. more dates uh coming up as of yet but i guess how do you that's something i always wanted to ask an artist you know you, you build up to an album and i think i don't I ask this question enough and then when it's out like what, what's the feeling is it oh wow it's it's out to the world but you can't change anything if you want to change anything so what what are the feelings these few months later after uh, uh what normal was has been out and circulating I mean, I typically don't think about changing it. Luckily, I mean, it's kind of knock on wood, right? Um, I, I just look at it, you know, when you're done with the record, you're done. It's like out of your hands. It's for, it's, it's weird. And when it's done before that time, you're, you're sitting listening for every little thing you can change and trying to find any flaw and any negative to it. And once it's done, you commit to that. It's like, I can finally enjoy it. So to speak, you know, especially for an album that, is like self-produced or, you know, you, you've worked on every little nook and cranny. Um, yeah. So it just, it becomes a different thing than that demo that's been working and living in my, on my phone, you know, used to be on a CD driving around in your car, you know, that, that constant flux, you know, so it's almost like this relief of what is out there and, you know, all the little screws that we tighten down to make a record, are almost inaudible probably to the casual listener, but they're there in the hopes of somebody listening many times and finding that little golden nugget. So it's like, you know, getting rid of that neurosis of going through that process is kind of a uh, a release and a relief. And I identify with that neurosis. And I think that's why I asked, perhaps I was projecting when I said changing something, because that's how I think I'm like, Oh, you work on something so I, I'm not a musician, so I can only really compare it to things that I've written or podcasts, of course. And me, I'm like, ah, I could have done this better always. And I guess ha- I've had to learn just to be okay with it. And at some point, because you're just tinkering around too much. Is that something you, you ever think about? I mean, I guess so. This this record in particular, I, I'll say production wise, I'm maybe happier with it than any record I've ever been involved with just because I had more time and you know there was it wasn't like that you know art is is never finished but only abandoned i didn't have that 
really. I mm. felt finished. <laughs> I felt like I truly yeah. finished this record. Yeah, which is not always the case. And, and uh, you know, I think that's one of the silver linings of COVID for me. I mean, it's like we started mixing at the top of the beginning, the beginning of the pandemic, like the, the week before it happened, like, you know, early March is when we started the first mix. So, um, you know, got to kind of sit back and go, well, we're, for, you know, forced our hand into taking a minute, you know, uh, trying to figure out what the hell was going to happen on planet earth and then mm -hmm. just go from there. You know? Yeah. You were probably chomping at the bit to, to get it out uh, at some point. Yeah. You build up yeah. that excitement, you know, to that moment and you know, that, that <laughs> all of that energy that you put and it's, that's usually a train you can't even stop if you wanted to. You decide you're going to put out a record, you're mixing, you're going towards a campaign. It, it's happening whether you like it or not, whether you, you're sick or not or whatever. But a global pandemic will, uh, as we found out, will change, you know, the yeah. most ironclad plans. So sure. it was you know, unique for everybody. So when did you, I, I know, I don't, I'm assuming this was filmed somewhat recently, but your new video is still off what normal was for uh, Ani. Uh, if you haven't, yeah. it's on up on YouTube and it's, it's, it's a mini movie. It's, uh, it's really with your music and it, which sounds like a movie soundtrack. Cause I know you've worked on those kind of things. So you were just great at that, but then you really put it on a movie. So can you tell us about the video for those who haven't seen it? I will give all credit to Minxie White, the director. Um, you know, I, I kind of took uh, you know, well, not kind of, I took a big step back and just like, I read some treatments. I read that, but it's really like you, you can read, you, you read a video treatment. If anyone ever has, they are, they take a lot of suspension of disbelief and a lot of like faith into the vision of the director. And you just never know what they're going to pull off. So this one was seemed a bit ambitious and uh but in hearing her enthusiasm about pulling it off i just kind of went with that you know i was sold on how passionate and how you know steadfast she was and like the, the fact that she was going to be able to pull this off the way it was written and um you know the the other logistics lined up so we went with it and you know my my part was very easy i had i feel like i had little to do with it. So I really have to just give, you know, Minxie and her crew all the credit. You know, I was just, I always came in on the shooting day and told what, where to stand, what to think, how to look, where to sit. Of. I don't know. Yeah. Where, yeah. Where to sit. Yeah. It's yeah. A, it's, it's just very just told very, when I could go to the bathroom, you know, the whole <laughs> thing. Like it was just, it's very rigid. You know, I was looking cause you are, you are kind of sitting throughout the, uh, so I had to be literal about it. You are sitting throughout it in, uh, in, I don't know if it's a hotel room or what, but I mean, it's the actors. Yeah. I never broke a sweat. I never broke a sweat. <laughs> but the actors literally breaking sweats, uh, in the video. Yeah. So it's very cool. It's up on your official, uh, YouTube. Uh, I got to ask, though, about the, the tour itself, because it involves a, a friend. I don't want to say a friend of the show. I'm not going to be over. Uh, I don't want to over exaggerate. He's been on the show as well. Uh, Josh Freeze. So who? Who? You don't know who Josh Freeze is? Your buddy? <laughs> so, yeah, he nobody, played Josh. Nobody, nobody knows Josh Freeze. Uh, knows I, I want to talk. I want to ask you more about him because, wow, has his uh, life kind of. I don't know. He has a lot more eyes um, on him. Or we'll talk about that. I'm, I'm alluding to the Taylor Hawkins tribute uh, lately, the, the two shows. But tell me about touring with, with Josh uh, this past summer. Well, actually, the drummer we had on the tour, uh, Grayson Nekrutman, 
young up and coming, you know, internet phenomenon, YouTube star. Um, he was a drummer for every show, but two. And Josh filled in for those two shows that oh. Gra- Grayson told me he couldn't do from the top of the tour. You know, he said, I, I can commit to the tour, but these two dates are unavailable. So I started looking for a replacement. And of course, Josh was my first thought. And um, he was able to pull it off. Tosh, Peters, uh, you know, Tosh, who played on, on Annie, um, he was, you know, we were considering having him play. It was, it was, it's so hard to kind of commit for somebody to take a tour break to go to two shows. You know, it's really is, uh, it's pretty tough. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. It worked out. I I can't believe it actually, uh, you know, we, we pulled it off, but it was amazing playing with Josh again. Okay. See my fault for not paying attention to the asterisk on an old poster of yours, the old tour dates where it says, these are the two (laughs) dates with Josh freeze on drums. But I don't know if you remember the first interview I did with you. I forgot that you were in the WLAR interview uh, documentary and I asked you. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> I'm that guy. So I'm, I'm consistent with, with, with the dumb thing. You're but, batting zero for two, man. Come on. Oh, man. What I have, we, what I are we mean, doing? There are some good questions in there. I mean, what I didn't ask last time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I know you are. Uh, that's what this. Uh, what's a, that's what I'm about. I have, you know, questions. But I was talking with Blackie Lawless about this. Like, if I had all these yes/no questions, I'm so distracted and I'm not listening to you. And so I just have like an outline, and I'm just here for the conversation. So I'm like on your Facebook while listening to you talking about the tour. And I'm like, oh, Josh was on tour with him. So I'm just letting you <laughs> on the inside of my crazy brain, my, my crazy brain. Uh, but that's I, right. Uh, before I, I, I do want to ask about uh, Josh, because it's funny how you met Josh with Guns N' Roses, because uh, yeah. uh, obviously Appetite for Distortion. But what I didn't ask you about last time was your time with David Bowie. I would love to know more about that experience. Oh, it's funny about Bowie is my, my son who just said, uh, you know, you knew David Bowie? Like somehow it came up and it, it's, it's been talked about, you know in our family, but it's just so funny how that's probably not even a name that registers, you know, like to, to most, most people it does, but like, you know, got to remember, like there's a generation of kids that are young enough to not really understand, you know, I don't know what the equivalent would be. It's like, you know, maybe what was that for us? It's like, uh, Charlie Chaplin. I don't know. Um, but anyway, so, so, so it was, uh, you know, at that time, I mean, I worked for Bowie because I was a tech for Nine Inch Nails. Bowie and Nails toured together. Um, I, they, they needed another hand on deck to handle Reeves Cabrels. And uh, so I just went from tr- teching for Trent straight into a teching for Reeves seamlessly as the show for the Nails show morphed into the David Bowie show on that tour. So it was great. You know, I got to um, do double duty and and uh and then wound up going out and continuing on with david and the entourage after that for like the end of 95 and 96. so it was you know the the root of the question usually is like what's david like and i can easily answer and go he's everything i think you think he is you know that's that's the way i he was everything that i you know this is pre-internet but everything that i imagined a david bowie post you know uh substance abuse david bowie post that would be you know wise funny talented gracious mature curious you know like he was just a 
he was an amazing guy, you know, and, and like personal, you know, from the little I got to see of him in a window of, uh, personal experience to, you know, the creative force and just the, the, uh, the inspiring thing is just continuing to move forward and be curious, you know, whether that's reading a book and getting excited by some factoid in there and that driving the next, um, you know, interest or, or, you know, I don't know, rabbit holes, the right way to say it, but it just, it, it was kind of, it was inspiring to me as a, you know, aspiring or wannabe artist to um, have another good role model to stick in your back pocket. I mean, yeah. A role model probably undersells it. Is that what you would say that you took away from your experience with Bowie to never stop being curious? Uh, that's one of, I mean, I, th I think a big part is, and, and not something I feel like I needed a ton of, um, convincing to do, but just to, to treat everyone, uh, respectfully. I think that's, you know, one of the best, one of the things I found early on, there's, there's many people in power, whether that's in business or music or whatever it is that, you know, do feel entitled, let's say, or they're, they are solely responsible for their own greatness, you know? And I, I feel like, you know, that's just such a, uh, a, um, position that's probably hard to keep because once that ego goes away, whatever deficit you're trying to overcome and then have your ego take over for it, it, it just seems to be the gross thing that everyone can identify eventually. And that's just a cancer that just eventually consumes somebody. I, I just feel like the other side of that is, you know, coming from a place of we are, you know, all the same, but we're given a, a set of genetic dice that got rolled that brought you on this planet, or you're given the, the, uh, you know, the, the fortune or misfortune of having the upbringing you did. And, you know, you're, you have to deal with <laughs> life as yeah. it comes with those set of parameters. Right. So, I mean, getting to him, who knows what he was given or the, the dice, you know, the, the rolled for him, but you know, whatever it was, he seemed to be truly interested in the well-being of people around him, you know, and yeah. even if that was in a, in a fleeting way. So I'm giving a very deep endorsement of David Bowie, but you know, it's, it's something I think for, you know, people that find their success to understand that it, you never, you, uh, you can't take it for granted. Very well put. And I have the same philosophy about that. Just the, the randomness of the universe and how we're all the same. And I, I kind of, you know, to kind of make it, uh, what, the way I guess it's a silly analogy, but I'm like, unless you're an X man with X, you know, superpowers, we're all the same. No one, I guess the only people I don't get along with are those with ego. Cause at the end of the day, yeah. we are all, all the same. So that's why I'd like talking to people like you who are very modest, who don't have an ego. Why I like talking to, and here's my segue, Josh freeze, who just seems to have zero ego, despite the fact that he has been on like 400 records has worked with everybody. So, I want to ask, just because it's, it's curious, because I reached out to Josh to see if he can come back on the podcast as well, but uh, I'm, I'm sure he's swarmed with interview requests after the Taylor Hawkins tribute. So I'm, I'm curious, did you have a relationship with, with Taylor? Did you get a chance to work with him or meet Taylor Hawkins? I, I, not really. I have to say, like, I've been around 
but uh, never, okay. we never got close or anything okay. like that. No. Yeah. I, I, I mean, even in the nineties, I, I uh, had met them, but you know, there comes a time on the road. Sometimes you have the benefit of being on a tour and you, you accelerate your relationship greatly just by being on a tour together, or sometimes it's a passing and catering. And that's kind of, I feel like my relationship with him was a passing okay. in passing and catering. Right on. But mine was, I don't want to tell the story again on the podcast, but mine was in passing at the bathroom with Sirius XM. So we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Bill, you can use your, <laughs> your imagination. Uh, but to go to Josh Freeze and to back to you uh, as well, something I didn't get a chance to ask you last time that you met Josh um, when you were at Tech with, with Guns N' Roses and you gave us your history about the, your quote, ever evolving position. So when you guys left to form a perfect circle, I'm curious, did you foresee that becoming like the next tool? Did you, because sometimes there are a big, there's a big singer that has a, I don't know if you want to call it a spinoff band, a side project, another band that is not as, as successful as their first, but uh, a perfect circle obviously can stand on its own. So I'm just curious what your, your thoughts were going into that project. I felt like there was a lot, I felt like there was a lot of, um, attention that was starting to come our way, you know, and, uh, but nothing, you know, talk about modesty and practicality, I should say Maynard is, is a ninja or a black belt in practicality, you know, so he's as much excitement as coming around to <laughs> implore you not to get sucked up into that, you know, that circus that is, you know, the ego inflating, fanfare around like a new, a new thing, but you don't want to extinguish it too much. You, you're that delicate balance of trying to get, you know, keep inspired, keep with the momentum. Don't talk anybody out of it, which that's, that's one of my problems. I'll talk you out of the music I'm making. So for, for whatever weird reason, and uh, you know, you can put me on the psychology couch for that, but like whatever, for whatever reason, there's some people that just are like, there is no stopping them. And some people that have kind of no, you know, I can look at it and go like, wow, that's, that's all ego and very little talent. And, um, and, but you know, there's a, there is a reason why some of those people succeed. I mean, there's, you know, people in our, in our, unfortunately always in our face that are lacking in talent, but just have bravado and, and, uh, I you know, know. I know a good sales pitch. So it's like, I don't know. You have to, you, you kind of, I remember going back to that time of starting off and going, yeah, there's these people trying to, you know, these record companies trying to sign us and I'm kind of going along for the ride. And luckily Maynard had already, you know, tread through these waters and uh, with, with a band in tow. And, and so he was obviously indispensable in that way and was a protector of, the musical family in that way, you know? So, but this was a new thing and tool wasn't a huge band yet, but super credible. You know, I think they, um, I, I don't remember. Someone brought it up the other day and I'm trying to remember like what size venues tool would do. I mean, that was kind of the measure, right? That was the measure of your popularity. Were you selling out the forum or were you selling out the palladium or selling out the, mm -hmm. you know, I'm listing local venues in LA and, um, yeah, it was just a different time, but everything seemed to explode in the early 2000s. So, um, but, but that being said, 
tool was it was the fact that Maynard was a zinger tool propelled this thing way further I mean, than anything. And uh, it was it was wild, man. It was wild. But the first shows we did were at little bars. I mean, some of them, the first shows we did before we were signed were playing, you know, a fucking pizza parlor in hmm. San Luis Obispo or, you know, a 400-seat or 200-seat venue here or there and not selling all of them out. So, um, you know, it's a grind. It's a, it's a, it's like anything else. you got to rebrand and figure out how you're going to make your mark. Is there anything you can tell us upcoming about A Perfect Circle? Anything in, in the works? Uh, I, I think last time you said that you were throwing around ideas, but um, any any updates? I know he's still doing his thing. Uh, I don't know if he, he's out with Pussifer right now, I believe. Yeah. Nothing anyone should be holding their breath for. But, um, oh, yeah, okay. there would be something. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have I've wrote some things that I think are in that, an interesting, you know, bucket that could work as a starting place of the next APC record. But, you know, we'll see where Maynard comes in that conversation okay. or what, what, how he finds the music. So, you know, for right now, I'm, I'm more, I'm kind of focused on a few different things. One is obviously the, the, you know, what normal was trying to figure out the next move for that. And, um, like I said, like you said, I mean, just had a new video out for Annie and um, doing some other kind of reworkings of some of that material and, and then talking about the next wave of shows that inevitably, inevitably will come. But as far as APC, I don't see that even in the next year. Okay. And to correct so, myself, yeah. I, I believe I said Annie, the name of the video. It's Annie. I was trying to be... Uh, same thing. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. See, I, within the, uh, the good questions that I ask, I still have to make mistakes. That's just part of who I am. <laughs> I <laughs> here, it's interesting. You know what it is? And this is perfect. You've actually given me a reason to, to say this on the podcast. You know, about the, the ego thing. It's I can only compare it because, again, I'm not a musician. I'm in radio, um, more than just this podcast. And I'm sure that you've done interviews with people in, in radio have just the biggest fucking egos. And it's like, who are you? Like, who are you? Yeah. So I, I'm so against being that. So I like to rep. I mean, I don't want to use that as an excuse. Obviously, I don't want to make any mistakes, but I let them fly because like, you know what? I am fallible. I can make mistakes, but you know what? I'm still professional at the same time. So you've yeah. given me a reason to say that because I want to represent <laughs> The awkward. Everyone's too cookie cutter and clean cut. There's too many of the awkward of us out there. So I want to represent that <laughs> that section of people. <laughs> yeah. But there's something to be said. I mean, I, I think we can't, you know, we can't uh, demonize the ego too much, right? I mean, we have to. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> it, yeah. There, there's some part of that that, you know, there's some part of that we need a sprinkling of. Um, but yeah. It's nice to be able to uh, go back and make sure. a mistake and not have the wheels come off the wagon, right? Another issue where I identify with you with the therapy couch, it's like maybe I have an issue with a confusing ego sometimes with confidence, which is obviously yeah. a good, very good thing. Uh, I don't want to keep you here sure. for, uh, forever, but I do, uh, do. I didn't get to ask you about this last time. Another name that perhaps should get more recognition just like yours, but you don't hear from him too often, is Robin Fink. And mm. you said that he called you, I believe, in 97 about the Guns N' Roses gig. So, And you kind of talked about the uniqueness of going from Nine Inch Nails to Guns N' Roses at that time. So I don't know. Can you tell us about how Robin was in the Guns N' Roses world? Because 
he contributed some of the best song. I know it's Chinese democracy, and some people don't look at it like Guns N' Roses. I do. A lot of people do. Great, great, like timeless classic songs. And he never really gave an interview about it. So I don't know. I don't want you to speak on his behalf, <laughs> certainly. Well, get him on. What I can speak to is get him on the I, show. I, if I, if you have his number, I've tried. You know, it's, it's, it, <laughs> it hasn't worked out. But what can you just tell us about working with Robin and uh, I guess specifically uh, during the Guns N' Roses Chinese Democracy se- sessions? I know it was a while ago, but if you can remember. Kind of such a blur, honestly. Like yeah. the, 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 the focus of that, especially in the beginning, the focus of coming into that world was going through a lot of material that they had before Robin or I were, were there in that room. So I guess it was like pre 97 or 96. I forget what year we got in there, but I think it was 97. Um, yeah. I, I, things evolved. It felt like we got thrown in to, which we did, right. We got thrown into a world that had, some kind of stability and was on some kind of track, but that was, was changing course. There was a, you know, the, the rudder was moving quickly. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. The, the, the writing of the record just seemed like exploration taken to a new extreme as far as, you know, songwriting goes. So I, I think I might've said before, what my, my experience of being there was, was there wasn't concrete, um, factory recording going on. And when I say factory recording, you can go into some bands that go in and, or with some producers and they know exactly how many tracks are going to be guitar and bass and, and like things are cookie cutter. It was very far from a cookie cutter situation. It was all exploration. It was all, you know, tapping into emotion and, and trying to find what was next. And so th- that was interesting. I mean, I attribute a lot of, what I learned as in studio craft to just being around that incubator and, you know, being able to see what to do, what not to do, you know? Um, but I, I, you know, like I told you before, I was truly emotionally invested in the project and wanted to see it through, but you know, there comes a time when, you know, you got your own opportunity and mine was knocking and I was ready for it. And, and I told Axel from day one that the, my intention was to go do my own, you know, project at some point or solo project or whatever it became. I don't even think Manor was involved yet by the time I started with GNR. Mm. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it's not easy to pin down as far as my, you know, experience there. Right on. I understand that. And I, I remember you saying that last time about you wanted to see the project through and I believe Josh did as well. He said the same thing, but yeah, you got, if there wasn't, um, I don't want to say there was no plan. I don't know if you want to say that there wasn't a plan, just like you said, it was exploration and trying to figure things out. So I guess if with that, the conversations you would have with Axel, did he only work at night? Could you share, you know, without getting, um, lifting up the curtain too much, you know, anything that's, that's private, but like what kind of conversations musically would you have, you know, as far as the direction? Because again, you, I, I believe you said they weren't doing any of the computer stuff at that time. So like, what kind of, what was he looking for? Do you, do you remember any, yeah, I don't know if you would remember specifics, but um, as far as like the direction, but what was he saying? I think he was looking for the future. He was looking for something forward moving. You know, uh, uh, I would assume now this is me assuming that he, you know, has to look at like any artist does right on your, uh, if it's anything past your first record, you've got to look at 
you know, what made people pay attention to you in the first place and how are you going to move that forward? And, you know, there's a, that's a, I can tell you from experience, it's a hard conversation to have in your own head. You know, you can, you can go, well, do I repeat the first record or keep repeating the first record or do I move forward and you can alienate, you know, taking two steps forward, but holding on to a one step of the past. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's, again, that's questions for those guys. Uh, but I, I saw it like from a technical standpoint and not even from musically, just, just technically the, there was a vision or there, there was a intention and a momentum towards finding something that was forward moving, you know? And that's where that was in like just the guitar rigs, let's say the start, like just programming guitar sounds within a guitar rig only, but then, you know, got into the computer realm of like, okay, instead of recording on tapes and being linear, let's get, let's, go nonlinear. Let's get inside the computer and move things around. And, um, that's where I think like the, the endless possibilities came into play and it gets more complicated, but it gets more, you can explore more. So I don't know. That's, that's what I remember blurry. I mean, it was kind of a blur because it was all like, I, you know, I came in at night. I don't remember coming in the day except for times I came in off, you know, when I go to, Axel's house to work on stuff or maybe, you know, it's studio when no one was there just to tighten up other work to do before everyone got in. Uh, yeah, it was mostly a night job. Hmm. Right on. I've done the graveyard shift or, you know, the night shift as well. So certainly not with Axel Rose, uh, yeah. but moving on, what is this? I know you kind of alluded to it before. What is next? Or you were kind of questioning what is next for you? Um, because the tour is done. The video is out. Would you make well, only did, only did six weeks in the U S or five and a half weeks in the U S um, Europe is important to me to get there and play and okay. Australia. I mean, like I can just, um, and, and I'll, you know, if I can get to, you know, Southeast Asia or Japan or whatever, I'll try and get there. But, um, great. Yeah. I definitely want to get to Europe before this campaign's over and just trying to find the right way to get there. Oh, great. No, that's, that's even better because, um, you're, you're a New Jersey guy where I, I can't help but think about, cause I'm New York. I have that East coast bias and I have listeners everywhere. So it's just like, yeah, no, right. I'm glad you had mentioned that, uh, because people want to see you everywhere. I have, uh, you know, listeners, yeah. plenty of listeners in Europe and the UK and all over, uh, Billy Howard yeah. and South America and South America, but it's just for some reason harder to get there. It's, so damn spread out <laughs> you'd start bigger than you think until you go there and tour and then you realize you know it's like man there's a lot of flying going on i'm doing just fan reviews of some of the guns and roses shows with i have uh, fans come on listeners of the podcast to kind of do a show with me and, and give reviews and just speaking to them from latin american countries and south america it's like wow I really have, I need a globe next to me or some sort of map next to me because I have to, I guess it's unbelievable. It's really unbelievable. Uh, but it's awesome that you're uh, thinking about it. And I can, and, yeah. and just thank you so much for your time, Billy. Uh, I hope we get to do this again. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. It was great talking to you. Guys. Yeah. See, Billy, remember it was like sometimes you finish an episode or you finish a CD like, oh, we should have done this. Well, that literally, <laughs> that literally just happened. So <laughs> perfect. We yeah. I was yeah. trying to find a way to even talk about this, that, uh, you know, since I put the record out under my name, but the, the original intention was to put it out under Ashes Bide and have that be the second Ashes record. But, um, it's so funny how spot, let's say Spotify use that as one, one metric, right? Like one piece of data 
the ashes page keeps growing and growing, which is great, but it's, it's funny that it grows. And I wonder if, uh, oh God, how am I trying to say this? I couldn't get into my ashes page for a long time for whatever reason. We got kind of locked out of it Weird. and finally just got in there. I was like, wow, the, 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 it's growing more and more exponentially since I put out my solo record. And it's funny that I feel, I still think people are confused as to what is this? You know, I, I guess putting out under my name, there was some confusion as to, is it the second ashes record, but there's nothing up on the page because uh -huh. people have come, you know, as I, as I would go to the merch booth at the end of our shows on this last tour, people would ask and still be confused about it. And I wondered from you, I was, I was curious from you how it, I mean, you're in the biz, quote unquote, you know, so <laughs> how you heard this record was coming out as another Ashes record or just under my name. And, under and you, that's uh, under you. Yeah. I remember asking you that the first interview, just the the decision to go under your name as opposed to Ashes Divide or creating another name. And uh, I, I don't want to recreate your, your answer, but. Um, you know that I mean, there are people. I saw a headline that that people still believe that Sebastian Bach is in Skid Row, so it's not <laughs> it's not really your yeah. fault. You know, when you were working with Guns N' Roses, there were people that still believed that Slash was in the band. So I don't know. I mean, you, I see your videos out there. I follow your pages. There's no confusion for me that it's Ashes Divide. Um, your name is all over everything. So I don't know. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, it is. It's, it's more, I'm more now, this is more curious. You know, this isn't even who knows if it's, this is interesting for a public consumption uh, conversation, but it's just a, so. it's, it's, it's just interesting to me. I, I see, uh, I hear it a lot. Like, Oh wow. I had no idea. You know, I, this is, this is the most shocking thing. I'll say I'll go to a show let's say I went to a cruel one cruel summer last year. It's a festival in LA. It's a huge, you know, hundred thousand cap music festival at the Rose bowl. And I, and someone would come up. I, my record was just came out or all the press was going on. And they said, I'm the hugest, you know, ABC fan. And what's going on, you know? And I said, Oh, I, I never self promote. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to gratuitously self promote. I go like, I got a record just came out. And they go, what, you know, and, and they're like, I don't know how that's possible. I follow all the socials. And so it's a weird either throttling of, you know, Facebook or Instagram or wherever, you know, you're consuming your information where it's not always getting through to even people that, that follow you. So I was just, I'm so curious about that because I hear it from other, you know, friends of mine who are in bands of going like, man, things have changed big time. And I don't know that we're reaching everyone that we should be. Yeah. Mm. So Because it could, you don't think it's could be people are looking you up and being like, who is this Billy Howardell? And like, Oh, ashes divide. I like them. And going back. Right. Yeah. Something like that. It, I, know. It, I made it, I made it, I made it terribly confusing. I think that's what I did. I don't think so. <laughs> Cause it's so funny. Cause recently just to be real and we're all on the same page about a lot of stuff. We are talking about, you think it's not my audience respects it. Cause we're talking about a Spotify algorithm conspiracy theory with guns and roses that if you type in perhaps some of the songs that you worked on during Chinese democracy, perhaps is one of the working titles, oddly enough that if you type in the names of these leaked uh, songs that who is going to know about Guns N' Roses Chinese Democracy leftover leaks that if you type it in under artists Guns N' Roses will come up among other artists that wasn't always the case so I'm just have you ever experienced like when you're putting a new song on Spotify if it does it come up in search 
Like, have you ever experienced anything? Does that sound crazy to you? <laughs> Is that any more? What th- that my new song would come up? Oh, you mean one I haven't released? Like, if if you yeah, if there's there's got to be a phase, like a publishing phase. If you have one that mm-hmm. is. Yeah, like you have a record release date, right? For what no- what normal was, and right. it's only going to come out on this specific date. If you go on a few days early, did you see Billy Howardell come up or Ashes Divide? Did you do that at all? Start searching or something? Um, I did. I did when we were. I did notice that it came up. You know, twenty four hours ahead of time, but that was like an algorithm thing. They, oh, okay. They, you know, our, our record was coming. You know, let's say Free and Weightless was a first single. And we were getting the visualizer ready, but it came out the night before. And I was like, what the hell? You know, like, are we out of sync? And then they said, no, the way it works now is it's got to come out at midnight. But actually, the release is at 8 a.m., you know. So who knows? I don't know. Well, it's, it's fascinating. Not exactly sure. Hey, yeah. it's, it's fascinating. So this is good talk. We're not going <laughs> to hear this uh, from any other interview. You know, this Spotify weird, <laughs> weird talk. Uh, see, yeah. Billy, I, I, like I said, maybe it's it's not for you. Uh, you're you're too smart. You work too hard that you probably don't need to re- rework anything. But for me, I'm like, ah, I should have asked that. So I'm glad we recorded this before I let you go. <laughs> this Spotify conundrum. Uh, so thank you All so good. much again for coming on Appetite for Distortion, and uh, hope to uh, to do this again. All good, man. Good to talk to you later. Thank you, Billy. And we continue this episode of Appetite for Distortion with a segment I like to call Appetite for Discovery, where we usually talk to a current band that you may not know. But this time around, we're going to talk to a photographer about bands in the early 80s that you may not know. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about this Bound for Hell on the Sunset Strip the Numero Group uh, label is putting out this 21-song, 2LP, uh, 144-page, full-color book, full of Kevin's photograph. So let's not waste any more time. Let's talk to Kevin on Appetite for Discovery. Rather than just throwing a bunch of songs together that we think are fun, we're going over it, you know, with a fine-tooth comb and just working on everything to try. That's the goal. Very appetite. For Discovery. We welcome Kevin Estrada, who is a photographer. I'm not sure if you're also a musician. I didn't ask that beforehand because you're not, we're not discovering your band. So first no, all, okay. you don't want to discover my band or any bands <laughs> I played in. I buried those long ago. So uh, this is like I was just telling you off the air. I, I have a very conversational way of interviewing. So Kevin Estrada is with us. He's a, an amazing photographer. Perhaps you've seen his photos, especially if you're a fan of not just this podcast, but 80s metal, the glam era, the Sunset Strip. If you want to call it hair metal, I know some people find that term offensive. But there's an amazing compilation that's coming out, um, Bound for Hell, on the Sunset Strip. So it's going to be, and, and, and tell me if I'm missing anything, it's vinyl, CDs, a book, photographs. It's just, it's so much, this whole compilation coming at us. And I do want to preface it that it's written by uh, a friend of the show, actually, uh, Catherine Turman. Who wrote louder than hell? Who's a, a yeah? She's a we brought Catherine in to do all the uh, all the text on it, all the uh, the interviews and the bios, yeah, all the the band pages, yeah. Awesome. So tell us about before I, I guess yeah, you're close. It's it's an LP set. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a CD set, but the first I think hundred or two hundred uh, album sets come with a bonus cassette also. Oh, with like five more tracks from from some of these artists it looks like an old demo and and uh, actually i have one right here okay 
So this is uh, the first few hundred or so get this bonus Bound for Hell cassette. Okay, uh, cool. So yeah, so we, yeah. So we try to cover it all. So LP, cassette, and CD. But yeah, big book, big glossy, full-color booklet, like a hardcover book. Um, the LP jackets are awesome, full of images. And it's it's really, yeah, it, it's we put our heart into it. We wanted to do it right. It's beautiful. If you haven't seen it yet, uh, good timing for this interview because I saw that Metal Edge just put up a a whole article yeah, about, about it and because i got the press release and stuff but i don't know what what's out to the public now so that you can really check out your photographs and i'm glad you mentioned the cassette because that just makes me think of your flyers because back then and i don't know kevin i don't know how old you think i am i'm 39 <laughs> I, I i miss this era i mean even though i'm a guns N' roses fan i was born slightly after it so i kind of well, that's one of the reasons we want to do this because i've met so many people you know, younger than myself that didn't grow up in the scene or, or weren't in LA, but a lot of them are younger and they just have this, this love affair, you know, they've heard about it. And there's this love affair with that, that genre, that era of, of rock that was out here. And, and, you know, they're always asking about it. They're always curious about it. They want to see my photos or, you know, they, they're just, you know, they, they wish they were there. And we kind of created this also for them, not only for people our age that were there and want to hear it again or, or have music that, that we never had on vinyl, but for that genre, that's, that's was, was a big part for me. I wanted to make that generation, this new generation that wishes they were there happy and feel that they got something from that, from that era. That's cool. And what got me into it other than just growing up, uh, listening to the radio because I'm an East Coast guy. I certainly didn't grow up on the West Coast, despite even you know, including my age. Uh, was the decline of Western civilization part two, and it has kind of that feel, but me, but not quite. And I think it's even better because we mentioned the cassette, and I was I don't want to lose the the thought and the flyers because I know that was the day when people would be putting up flyers DIY and handing cassettes obviously well 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 before the internet anything of, of that nature that uh, was our internet yeah yeah that was the internet uh, that was social media i mean those were, i see that's why i'm not that young i remember the days before the internet you know i i, I do remember those <laughs> uh, but when i was the with the decline of western civilization part 2 you have the mix of the famous and the not famous, you know, the Aussies, the Kiss, the Poisons, and those who just never made it. And with this compilation, you focus on those who just, I don't know, how, how would you phrase it? Never made it, didn't get their you due? You know, uh, to, to a lot of us that were there in the scene, like a lot of these bands did make it, you know, mm -hmm. like headlining a show at the country club to us, you know, as a teenager, we're like, wow, this band made it, you know. But we see it more as like these were like the bands that paved the road for a lot of the bands that made it, that made it big, you know, like, like, you know, Leather Angel or Sin kind of paved that road for bands like, like Cinderella or, or Poison or Dokken, you know, who made it later on. It's just that these bands really broke down a lot of walls out here in LA and, and pushed, pushed things to the limits in terms of their, of their stage shows and, and just marketing ideas, like you're saying, flyers, just always pushing the envelope and it paved the way for a lot of these other bands that that got signed to big big deals and made millions of 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 dollars and and toured the world you know a lot of these bands they're the unsung heroes and 
a lot of those bands, their songs wouldn't even have been creative if they weren't for bands like Steeler. You know, Metallica was opening up for Steeler mm. at, at the Whiskey and and at, at the Woodstock and things like that. You know, so it's just these little bands that are kind of unheard of really made an impact on the scene. How did the idea come together to put this together? Because they could be easily forgotten, and I'm glad they're not going to be. You know, because I, I I'm looking at the list, and I thought I was cool. I thought I knew. I, you know, there's only maybe Odin. There's a few names I recognize. So I have a lot to learn. So how did you go about this project and, and what bands to pick? Yeah, it was it was a tough process. You know, I worked with um, with Adam. He's a, a producer as well on this. We're co-producers on this project. And, and I worked with Adam on a white zombie box set uh, that the Numero group put out years ago. And I was involved in that just with my photographs for the book and the packaging because uh, I was very close with White Zombie back in the day. And when we finished that project, we just really wanted to do another project together. We had a great time working together and we both are big music fans. And um, he had this idea of doing this metal set because he comes from that generation that was too young to be there. Mm and kind of had this love affair for it. And I connected with him on that because I have met so many people in that same boat. So we got this idea of doing this box set of kind of those unsung, unsung heroes, the, the early pioneers of the, of the LA metal scene. And we wanted to have a few bands on there that did sort of make it kind of those, those, those uh, decline bands. Um, so we have Odin in there and we have Steeler in there. Some of these bands that are known like Steeler has history because Ingve Malmsteen recorded that that Steeler album with the band, and Ingve brought a lot of no, notoriety to Steeler. But for the most part, there's bands that no one's heard of. I mean, there's Armored Saint, which mm. kind of is probably the biggest band on True. on that box set. True. Um, but also they they were pioneers, also doing a lot of DIY for the metal scene with the flyers and the cassettes. Um, so we really wanted to kind of build upon the early history of, of metal starting in the late seventies when it really was just hard rock before LA metal was even a term oh, um, with okay. bands like Stormer um, who were just straight up rock bands, but had that feel that kind of moved forward and, and pushed into a harder, harder edge you know, Stormer was playing uh, club shows with Van Halen all the time. And you can hear some of that kind of Van Halen-esque um, guitar work and, 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 and strategy within the song that was just forming at that time. And bands like that really set the tone for pushing the envelope, you know. And um, so we really wanted to build on an early, late 70s rock and build into kind of that mid eighties when it was full on metal and leather and chains and kind of hmm. see that progression of how it went. Oh, that's cool that you'd go back even further. Cause you're thinking like early eighties, that's pretty far. Uh, but you're going to, you're getting to the kind of the, the Genesis of it where it's got to start in the seventies from something. Yeah. It didn't just go all of a sudden, 1979, 1980, and there's this leather everywhere. It had to start from, from somewhere. Uh, there are some bands that I've known about, but I'm curious to learn more 
about. Uh, one of them would be. That's what, the, that's what the book is for. Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> and I, I love it because I'm the kind of guy. I'm, I'm not a huge reader. I shouldn't say that, but this is I'm looking forward to. I like the way Catherine writes. But what I've always yeah, Catherine got, did a great job, really digging in there, and she spent so much time on the phone and on Zooms with these bands, and mm-hmm. and some of these bands she'd never heard of either, and oh, she wow. really dove in and and really absorbed everything, and she just did such a phenomenal job on on each of the bands. Uh, sections in this book it's for her not to know a band that's just like wow she's kind of one of those you know ben stein brains when yeah very, rock and very roll. you know there's a couple on there that that nobody heard i mean yeah adam brought in a band um that i really n- never knew about um okay what band was it and i said who <laughs> um i forget i don't think they made it i don't think we could license but there was a band i completely never heard of you know, so they're out there. But that's cool. That's that's I like that. But then there are bands like Lizzie Borden. You know, like yeah. how, uh, can you tell us what's um, you know? Tell us more, like because that's a band that I know I've always known about, but I don't really know about. What can you tell? Yeah, us? Lizzie was Lizzie Borden was one of those bands where, um, they got the word out quick because of their big theatrical show. You know, it was a, it was like kind of like drama on stage, and um. And that's what we all, that's what was building in LA in the mid, I'd say 83 through 85 was this, the stage shows had to get bigger and bigger and and more dramatic. You know, Wasp kind of started that off with, with huge pyro on stage and a tiny little club. They were playing the, you know, the Enormo Dome in there with, with flames and, and pyro. So these bands started saying, you know, we want to give the audience a little more. And Lizzie had, had a whole theatrical show with bringing out a huge ax and chopping the head off of Lizzie Borden and, you know, and, 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 bloodied mannequins hanging on the stage and and it was really it one of those shows where you got a lot for your money and that's what we were kind of that's what us, us kids were, were doing at the time we wanted to see something bigger each time and it just got getting bigger and bigger and bigger and the music was louder and louder and we were feeding off of that and at the time that was so new there was nothing like that at the time. And, and it was like the old wild West, you know, people were just kind of like saying, I'm going to try this and let's see how that goes. And if that doesn't work, we're going to do this. There was no rules. The clubs had no clue. They just said, come on in and play. And, you know, wasp lights the whole place up on fire, you know? And, and it was like, great. We'll see you next week. You know, that was the whole, that was the beauty of heavy metal at the time. It was like an experience that we were all like taking part in at the same time. That's why I'm glad this is more than just a compilation album to listen to that you can see, you can see these things with the vibrant colors that you've been uh, restoring these photographs. I'm sure you've restored them to um, then their, their original look. But uh, what made me even more excited to when I found out when I was going to speak to you, because uh, it was like an episode ago, I had Blackie Lawless on. Oh, wow. Awesome. And he was talking about lighting. It was a question from a listener. Sorry, I forget the listener's name to credit him. But he asked about that Wasp uh, logo that was set on fire, if the Troubadour still has a burn mark. And he confirmed that, that he went back recently and he can see where it used to be burnt. And uh, that's, yeah, that's the kind of rock and roll that I don't, you don't see too much of today there are certainly rock acts doing that for sure i mean i'll tell you when i took those photos i was glad i was sitting for that photo i shot of, of the wasp logo on fire i was so happy i was sitting in the balcony i was sitting in the front row of the balcony which hung over the the, the floor and the skin of my face just felt like it was going to peal off the heat <laughs> was just so intense 
you know, if I would have been in the very front, I don't know how those kids up front handled it. It was brutally hot, like dangerously hot. I'm glad no one's Aquanet went up in flames. You know, <laughs> You're right. With that. Um, we were just a couple years before that danger. Yeah. You know, that was like 83, uh, 84. Okay. So 85, 86. Yeah. The Aquanet would have gone up. It would have okay. just been hugely combustible. Okay. See, you know, see, I'm just go. I have to learn from you of what's, I'm an 83 baby. What did I know? I was listening to the Muppet babies as I usually see, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going back and, you know, I want to ask you then, because just I'm, I'm just curious. Cause, uh, Blackie mentioned that no one before Wasp ever did the the decimals, the periods. Do you remember that? I mean, there's some controversy, like maybe REM did that before, and I guess I have a follow up with that with another band that's going to be on there. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I don't know. I mean, in terms of metal, you know, I don't know. I'd have to kind of research that. I'm just but okay, yeah, right. I don't know. It added a lot. It added a lot to the band because, you know, all of us in LA were wondering what Wasp stood for. You right. know, there was so many because we knew it had to stand for something because of the periods in between each each letter. So there was, you know, we are sexual perverts was going around. Yeah. Um, we are sexual sexual predators. Uh, of course, there was white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. You know, there was so many different you know, version that people were making up and, you know, Wasp was so smart. They would never say really yeah. what, what it stood for. And it probably didn't even stand for anything. They just did it in there. Cause it looked cool. I, just like Motley Crue with the umlocks on there, you know, like just look cool. I know. And I asked him just that, what does Wasp mean in 2022? And he kind of said the same thing. He's like, I'm not like, I don't want to answer it. It's just that it doesn't, we don't want it to stand. It doesn't say, you know, anything. and that's, that's the beauty of the music from back then. There was a mystery about mm -hmm. it. You know, there was this, this, huge you know mystery and a lot of it was built up in your heads or discussing with your friends because like like we discussed earlier there was no internet the only way that we knew about anything was reading a fanzine or going to a show or talking to somebody else who was at a show uh you know i would trade cassettes with people in right. germany oh, okay. in, all over europe south america you know i was in the big tape trading back then and that was my internet you know getting a fanzine and going through the classifieds and circling who I'm going to write to and who I'm going to send a tape to. And then you wait weeks and weeks and that, that anticipation would just build. And there was so much excitement about it and mystery. And, and all of that is just, it's, it doesn't exist anymore. You know, if you want to hear a wasp demo, you type in wasp demo in Google, and then you've got 19 demos right there in front of you in seconds. For me, I'd be like, Oh wow, this guy has, you know, um, an armored sink demo that I don't have. And I'm in LA. So I would trade this guy wasp demo for an armored sink demo. And the guy lived in Germany and I'd wait and it'd come. And, and then, you know, the excitement was there. And then the next thing you'd, you'd trade for a Metallica demo. It was just, it was a whole different world. And I think that's what made it so special too, because we're all discovering things at the same time, but in so many different ways, we had to be creative and really, you know, your dedication to, to music really, really took part. You know, it, it showed, not only the shirts you wore, but the cassettes that you had in your pocket really showed how dedicated you were to that scene, to that music. Oh, man. It's just, yeah, we're so detached from that now. I just think of the, the waiting, the, the anticipation. Now with Amazon Prime, you don't have to wait for anything. <laughs> I mean, it even got, it got accelerated during the, the pandemic. I mean, you don't have to wait for anything. Uh, with that train of thought, though, with the creativity, what came first then? Black in blue 
the band or Guns N Roses? Who did the N apostrophe first? It was definitely Black and Blue was first. Okay. Their apostrophe yeah. was before the N. Guns N' Roses is after, so maybe that's why they didn't get N sued. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you know, they didn't want to they didn't want to truly, you know, duplicate the original. Because uh, I, I, I didn't know about this band. Who is Black and Blue? Black and Blue was you didn't know about you really never knew Black and Blue. No, wow. I'll admit it. They're a they were originally a Portland band. Mm-hmm. But they were very much doing the LA. They were very much influenced by that whole LA scene, that style. Without knowing it, they were doing the LA style already in in Portland. Um, that song that we have is the very first black and blue song that they ever recorded, ever wrote, ever demoed. Um, so I wanted something really special. And black and blue was actually signed to a major label. They were on, I believe, on Geffen Records. Okay, and they put out. I think three records, three or four records. Um, they had music videos on MTV. They did national tours. I think they toured with the Scorpions. Um, they they were they were on one of those bands on the verge, but just never really exploded. Okay. Um, and then Tommy Thayer, you know, his new claim to fame is he's now playing the Star Child in in yes. in Kids. Um, and after Black and Blue. Um, the singer Jamie and Tommy were both in a Kiss tribute band. Um, which one were they in? I forget which which band, but they were in a Kiss tribute band, and that's kind of how Tommy landed in Kiss. He became the guitar tech for Ace, and then became Starchild. Okay. But yeah, Black and Blue was was a huge band. They moved down to L.A. in probably late '83, and just immediately stormed LA. I mean, they rolled through and they were headlining in within months. They were headlining the Troubadour, headlining the Roxy, headlining the country club. They, they took off quick and they were kind of that sure thing that all the labels were looking at. That was going to be kind of like the next Van Halen or the next rat. And it just, it didn't happen for them. Not in that capacity. Okay. See, I have no problem admitting that. I don't know everything. And yeah, that's, that's, good. That's, the kind that's, of the, that's the beauty of this. I'm glad yes. to know that, that we're educating people, that people are, you know, discovering new things. Yeah. This is kind of the point of the whole thing. It really is. It is. We just experience it live, you know. Uh, and our whole approach with the book, too, is we wanted the book to be very educational, too. Mm-hmm. Not just telling you who the band was, but also make you kind of dive into it deeper and connect this band with that band or this band with that musician so you can kind of want to look into it more on your own and and just dive deeper into the into this whole early metal world it's very cool and obviously we have to dive deeper because this is a appetite for distortion it's a guns and roses podcast and it's not just because you kind of look like gilby clark without the, <laughs> without the goatee great head of hair i mean uh, thank you you and eric is it an estrada thing you and eric estrada Maybe, you know, I don't know. I, I hear he's selling Swampland. So if I get into that, then it's definitely an Estrada thing. But yeah, I figured, well, I have it. I might as well grow it. I grew it out again during COVID. So, well, yeah, me too. So, well, yeah. It fell on my face. I guess that's where I have it now. <laughs> um, I, I know you've had some GNR experiences in your photography days and your concert going days. I, I, I've seen some of your sh- uh, shots of, of Axel at Perkins Palace where he's wearing the, the Motley Crue shirt. Oh, yeah, uh, the, the, the Girls, Girls, Girls shirt. Yeah, yeah, which is pretty famous. So can you tell us you know, about your, your Guns N' Roses yeah. history? Yeah, well, when um, growing up, kind of, so I'll go back a little bit. So I grew up in L.A. area, like Pasadena, Arcadia area. 
went to school with uh, in what I call is Van Halen country. I went to school with Michael Anthony's younger brother. Uh, I went to all the same schools as like the Van Halen's and Dave um, kind of always ran into them. And that was kind of my favorite band growing up. Cause I felt I had this connection to them. Um, but then when, um, you know, when I got older, you know, I was obviously going to clubs and discovering new bands and kind of that, that hair metal thing kind of started around 85, 86. And I really wasn't into the whole hair metal thing where the guys looked like girls and they were kind of, in my opinion, focusing more on their look than on their music. I was really into the music and the stage show and not really, I mean, I wanted them to look cool, but the music should be priority and the look should come with that. And these other bands kind of changed that. It was about the look and then they figured out how to write songs. So when that kind of happened in LA, I kind of dove into kind of the, the more underground stuff again with like the Jane's Addictions of the world and the Chili Peppers, that kind of underground world that was just starting um, as the hair metal thing was going. But there was this one band that kind of crossed over in both worlds, that kind of underground kind of alternative world and kind of that hair metal world. And that was this little band called Guns N' Roses. And they were kind of like a punk band, but kind of like a rock band and kind of like a metal band. Like we couldn't figure them out. There was something really special about that band. So to me, that band, out of those new bands that were coming out, which was like Warrant and Poison, there was all those Guns N' Roses was kind of this special band. Like for some reason there was, they were more credible and they were doing it right. And they were doing their own thing. So we, yeah, we would go check out Guns N' Roses and we saw them like at strange places early in the early days, they were playing like dance clubs. Like I saw them at this dance club called Circus or Circus Circus, which was a, a dance club on Fridays and Saturdays like disco, like disco huh. dance club. But like on Thursdays, Wednesdays or Thursdays, they wanted to try to make some money. So they started having rock bands play there. <laughs> okay. So I saw Guns N' Roses there and I saw Guns at the Whiskey and um, the Roxy and um, like I said, Perkins Palace. That was, the Perkins Palace shows were amazing because that's right when they were on the verge of exploding huge. You know, the record was out. It was just starting to take off. And they were only planning on playing one show there, Perkins. Perkins was this legendary club in Pasadena where everybody played there. Motley Crue, I saw them in, in 83 there. Um, Wasp played there. Steeler, Quiet Riot. Like all the bands when they're just making it, that's like the place. That's like the mini LA forum to play, to know you're making it. And um, Guns was set up to play. They tickets went on sale for that show and it sold out like in a day, day and a half, which was pretty impressive for them. So they added a second show, then a third show. And I think they ended up playing four shows over like Christmas break. Um, and that, that was like the legendary shows of guns. And that's when we, we knew that was the last time we we're going to see them in a club uh -huh. because they were already in their heads. They were already playing the Coliseum, you know, they were already, headlining the biggest places you know rock and rio already because they just had it like they propelled so quickly from say madame wong's you know in a year and a half this show at perkins palace was just phenomenal their the way they their stage show was their songs just the songs they were writing just were far beyond what they what they were doing before and and that's a special show to me. Yeah. Because like I said, that was the last time that I knew I'd be seeing them in a club and it pretty much was. 
Were you going as a, a fan, rock fan, or were you going to take photographs? So to take a couple nope. steps, okay, yeah, because I want to take then, a couple, a couple, yeah, a yeah, couple yeah, steps that's back. That's a good question. Because yeah, I've had David Plastic on, uh, Jack Lou on, and I kind of like to know how you got into photography and how you. Yeah, got that's enjoyed. a great question. So, yeah, go ahead. I always, I started off always as a music fan, just going to see bands because I love bands. But I started. Um, I always wanted to bring something home, something to remember that show from. Sometimes it was a t-shirt, you know, some of the big shows had tour programs and I loved looking at tour books, tour programs. I loved the photographs. I was a big fan of circus and hit parader and, and cream magazine. So I was a very visual person always. And at these shows, I started, I, I just said, I want to bring something home. So I, started smuggling in my brother's camera to these concerts, to these clubs, just to snap a couple of figures of photos so I could have something to remember that show by. And before I knew it, it was kind of an obsession. I was, I couldn't even go to a show anymore if I wasn't sneaking that camera in. And I was just a kid. I was just a teenager. So I didn't know what it was like. I didn't know what a publicist was. I didn't know what a photo pass was. I didn't know what photo credentials were nothing like that. I didn't know how to contact a magazine. All I knew was I wanted to see this band. I loved this band. I wanted to bring home a couple of pictures from that show. So I could say, yeah, that was a great show. Or if I wanted to reminisce about it, what was he wearing at that show? And I could go back and look at that. And it became an obsession. Like I said, I couldn't even go to a show without at least trying to sneak my camera in. And over that decade or whatever, the eighties, you know, I, I got a really good, I captured such a big part of that whole scene without really having that to be my, my intent, you know? So I, I got wasp in the clubs and rat in the clubs and, you know, early Van Halen and, and all of that, that really, that really grabbed that era. And a lot of those photos ended up in this box set, which, seem to really give it that kind of legit feel that we wanted it to have. I love that. That that means the photos are, are organic. They're real. You weren't trying for anything other than just to be in the moment. You know? Yeah, uh, that's how exactly. I, that was it. I mean, and, and those photos, you know, I'm in the in the crowd with the rest of the fans, you yeah. know, and I'm and I'm probably a good foot, foot and a half shorter than everybody else in there. And it was, it was tough. You know, sometimes I have to drag a chair in there and stand on a chair and get punched because people are tripping over the chair or, or I'd get caught with my camera and I get thrown out of the show or security guy would strangle me or punch me in the head and then throw me out. Oh my God. Um, but yeah, so it was really like a passion thing back for me as a kid. I just really was passionate about it. I wasn't out drinking. I wasn't out doing drugs. I was saving my money for another role of film to go to that show. And then I started, you know, selling my photos to kids at other shows to make money, to buy more film. <laughs> so like if the Scorpions were playing the forum. I'd show up at the forum with a little photo book and I'd sell pictures of, of rat and iron maiden, whoever I might have and come home with 70, $80 in my pockets. So I could buy more film and more concert tickets. And then you know, later, a few years later, I got really lucky and Cream Magazine discovered me and I started shooting for Cream Magazine um, as a real legitimate photographer. I was the youngest photographer shooting for Cream and and um, I learned a lot. You know, that's when I learned what a publicist was and that I can have a photo pass and actually go into a, a photo pit and, and shoot without, you know, getting kicked in the face. And, and uh, yeah, it was a whole new world just opened up for me. Oh, very cool. That, that really is just, that's bringing your passion and making it your life. 
And yeah, and, and I still I still, still an active shooter today. Yep, I make my living as a photographer, but but to me, the most rewarding thing still to this day is when I sell a photo that I shot when I was like 15 years old, you yeah. know, or 16. You know, that to me is more special than shooting something I shot three years ago. You know, those moments, like it's so special to me that that the photos are still important, you know, to, that people still want to see them. Absolutely. So I'm assuming people can see them on your website, kevinestrada.com. Yeah. Um, I would say my website has a few of the oldies, um, but my Instagram really shows a lot more okay. diversity. Yeah. And that's Kevin Estrada Photography. Okay. And the same thing. Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, both of them. All right. Very cool. And the as far as the, the box set, the the cassette, the book, the vinyl, it's coming out on Numero Grupo, which is a, a label out of Chicago where my yeah, wife- Yeah, the Numero Group. The Numero Group. <laughs> Numero Grupo. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm losing it, man. Uh, and that's going to be coming out. I just had the date up here. It's coming out uh, October 28th. 28th. Ah, jinx. Yeah, and we're having everybody- who's in the area or even if you're not flying we're having a uh, an awesome record release party october 28th at the, at the rainbow upstairs room at the rainbow and it's free to the public um i think when it's packed they'll start turning away people but um we're going to have a lot of those those musicians that are on the box set be there um it's going to be a great hang we're going to play the you know every song and we're going to be playing it on vinyl flipping that record every 15, 20 minutes and uh, play, play the whole box set all night. And like I said, they're going to, the musicians who made this music, who created this whole scene are going to be there and it's just going to be a great hang. And it's, uh, you know, for me, it's really rewarding because these musicians really helped change my life. Like I wouldn't know where I would be today. Seriously. It sounds cheesy, but like I tell my wife, heavy metal music changed my life, you know, I have a career, you know, we own a home. I have kids, you know, in college and I make my living by selling photos that I started off doing as a kid. And it's like, like, you know, it's, it's like a, it's like a, a Rocky movie to me. Yeah. You know, again, I'm so blessed to have, have this life. And if it wasn't for that music, I don't know what I would be doing. Honestly, mm. I don't know if I'd be working at Burger King. I don't know if I'd be sitting in an office, but it really, helped carve who I became and what I did. And these musicians here, you know, they're unsung heroes. People never heard of these bands, but you know, they created a scene that's just, that's impacted so many people and changed so many lives. And to me, this is giving back to them. Like this is their legacy on this box set. You know, a lot of yeah. these guys, you know, they only had cassettes. They had a cassette with their demo and that was it like Stormer. And, you know, their, their music comes from their cassette. They were never on vinyl. And to be finally on vinyl, like, they're so excited. They get this thing and they put the needle down for the first time in their life. And these guys are in their 60s, you know, late 60s. And it's so rewarding to me to know that I can give back to them. You know, that Adam and I created this, this, this package that really is fulfilling them. You know, it's, and it's their legacy, and it's so important to me that their legacy is just done the right way. And that's, that's why we created this box set. You got the right people on it. You and Adam and we definitely did. Yeah. Wow. We this is certainly a, a love letter, a history lesson, 
something. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a gift. I'm sure all these bands, if not all of them, were appreciative of being. Thanks for not you know forgetting us because there are fans who haven't forgotten them. Uh, there are fans like me who need to learn more or to learn something at all. So this is just a great thing that you've put together. And who knows? Maybe there'll be a, a bound for hell too at some point. You know, I'm, I'm hoping. That's I want to talk to Adam about that. We want to work on another box set. We're not sure what it will be, but uh, I could see. I know there's plenty more music out there for a, a Bound for Hell 2.0. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, one of those deluxe editions 2.5 that, that comes out is even yeah. more. Very cool. Well, Kevin Estrada, this really was a pleasure uh, to meet you and to talk to you, to learn from you. So I hope we get to do this again, man. Same. Thank you so much for having me. And if anybody wants to see any of the, my photos, it's at Kevin Estrada Photography, uh, kevinestrada.com. You can email me directly there. My info is there. I love talking to fans. Um, and yeah, take a take a ride down my down my gallery and see my life. It's all all in pictures there. You know, there's just decades and decades of my life there. And um, this box set is kind of a, you know, I'm not going to say it's closure for me for the scene, but like I said, it's just a really good way for me to give back to these people. And and um, you know, we'd love to see as many of you there at the at the at the party on the 28th, well, celebrating these people's lives and the music they made. Congratulations, just um, on the on a great, I almost said product, but I don't even know a great experience, a great experience Thanks, that you're giving out. So thank you, Kevin. Yeah, and and it's not just me; it's a team. You know, those me and Adam and Douglas and Catherine and so many people at that label like just put our hearts in it for years and years. You know, and it's just a, a labor of love for everybody. And we none of us could have done it alone. We all needed each other, and and we're really blessed that the right team came together at the right time. Right on. Thank you, Kevin. Well, thanks, man. So that does it for this episode of Appetite for Distortion. Thank you for hanging out. Two great guests. Thank you, Kevin, once again. And, of course, thank you to Billy Howardell. As far as what is to come on the podcast, well, I can tell you this. Gore. Yeah, we're going to get gore on the podcast. Oh, I'm excited for that. Uh, Also, we're going to speak to Monster Magnet. Ooh, so we have some actually some fun guests coming up. I should be more uh, specific. Postuous from Gore and uh, and Dave from Monster Magnet. So I'm really excited for those upcoming episodes, and of course, find out what they have going on in addition to their six degrees of GNR bacon. So if you would like to get in some questions for Monster Magnet or for Gwar. The conversation always continues in between the broadcasts on social media, at the AFD Podcast on Twitter. Also, that's the new handle for our YouTube. YouTube changed where you can put a URL, so it's just youtube.com slash at the AFD Podcast. You can find us on YouTube, Appetite for Distortion, uh, on on Facebook, on Instagram as well. So if you want to get in on these uh, these com- upcoming episodes, some questions asks, or find out any upcoming guest episodes before you hear it. And you're like, oh, no, I wish I could have asked so-and-so a question. If I only knew in advance. Well, I'm telling you, in advance on social media. Follow us in between the episodes. So until then, when will you see the next episode of Appetite for Distortion? In the words of Axel Rose concerning Chinese democracy, you'll see it, I don't know, as soon as the word. security, I'm going home.